Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. The following discussion was recorded on the fringe of the Oslo Freedom Forum last year, 2018. Seven of us from the Arab region found ourselves in a room together, and what followed was an incredibly fascinating discussion on identity, exile, activism, trauma, and healing. Whether the Arab Spring failed and different visions of what the future holds. We just moved on from the stage programming, which uh, concluded earlier today. On the stage, I was really touched by, I think, three speeches. These are the ones that really stuck with me. Asma Khalifa from Libya, who spoke about what happened to Libya's revolution. There was, of course, Wael Ghanim, who, of course, I wrote his speech for him. <laughs> <laughs> Fake news. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. I, I, I give you the credit. And of course, I was really amazed that we actually managed to get a video message or a video link up with Anwar Ibrahim, who, again, I mean, what happened in, in Malaysia is really astounding. And I have kind of a special story about it. I want Wael really to start the conversation because the reason, Wael, that I was able to effectively assist with your speech is because it really touched my heart really deeply. And I felt like you don't have to explain so much to me what you're trying to say. In a way, the reason why I could connect with these sentences is that it really was almost as if you're saying what I want to say anyway. This whole speech was inspired actually by a discussion I had with someone who, um, in, uh, she's American. She told me that anyone who voted for Trump should be fired from the company she works for. And uh, I, I engaged her in a discussion. I found a pattern that's very similar to patterns I've seen in Egypt of people who are very close-minded about how open-minded they are. I, I went back home. And I was very annoyed at the conversation and I wrote these 20 short points. And they just like, came at that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all like at that moment. Because I, I thought like she was very self-unaware of how close-minded she was. Uh, I hope she's not going to listen to the article. <laughs> she needs to <laughs> No, I'm not sure she does. I think, uh, I think you should send her a link to Yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, you have inspired me. I'm in Oslo because of you. Actually, that's true. Alex pings me every year. Uh, yeah. Alex Gladstein from... Uh, from Mars Foundation. Yeah. Things me every year, come to Oslo, come to Oslo. I was like, okay, I'm happy to come up if I do this talk. Because I feel like, okay, that's, if that's Activistan, every, every activist from different parts of the world. Right, you called it Activistan? Yeah, Activistan. <laughs> then it might be interesting to share those thoughts with them and kind of, it's, it's provoking in a way. So let me introduce you first, Khaled. Khaled Al-Bayh, or this is his new stage name, right? Yeah. Al-Bayh. Mm-hmm. Khaled Al-Bayh is basically a Sudanese cartoonist who you know, every time he, he creates a cartoon, it happens to go viral. You grew up in the Gulf, right? Yeah. And yeah. you're currently in Copenhagen. When you were talking, I think it was a, a lot of us that came out of the, the trauma that was the Arab Spring. And your friend that was talking about everybody should be fired from Trump. I think they, they're at that stage where we were eight years ago, you know? And when you were talking, it's, 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 it's exactly what he had said. It's, it's like you were talking to me. Because, you know, I, I'm a cartoonist, right? And I was just drawing every single day. I was drawing about Egypt. I was drawing about Yemen. I was drawing about Syria because it was, it was us, you know, it was, this is what we all needed. And when, you know, these points and notes to self, 
I just wish I could go back in time, yeah. you know, because it really affected us in a way that I never thought, you know, that hope can turn to this hopeless. It's, 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 it's hopelessness. It's, it's incredible. And we see it happening. I'm reminded of a conversation I had with Ivan Marovich, who is a comrade of Sergei Popovich from the Otpor movement. And I mentioned that. I mentioned that, you know, our movement failed. And maybe that's why we have this epidemic of uh, trauma among our activists. And he said something that really, really, really shocked me. He said it's, it has nothing to do with success or failure. He said that after the Otpur movement succeeded, they won. There was an epidemic of trauma and suicide among activists. And the way that he explained it, he said it's because whether your movement succeeds or fails, you have been part of something so historic and a cause which is so big, so much bigger than you, that you kind of lose your self, your sense of identity. The cause becomes you and, and you become the cause. And just like Wael said on stage today, it robs you of your identity. It beats you up. It blindfolds you. And it becomes almost impossible of, for, for, for you to actually go back to, to whatever you consider your normal. And I, I believe whether we like it or not, it happens to be kind of a room of exiles. <laughs> but I know, Amir, that you have been going through the transition yourself. Yeah, I mean, before I started my blog, The Sudanese Thinker, I was just uh, a guy trying to fit in in order to survive and, and be safe. And my name was my given name, Amir Ahmed Nasr. I started The Sudanese Thinker because of what was happening in Darfur, and I was annoyed that everybody was talking about it except Sudanese themselves. But I started the blog under a pseudonym, and I called myself Drima, D-R-I-M-A, which is Amir backwards with a d from ahmed so it was also kind of a joke that nobody's going to know that it's me even though my name is going to be in front of their face all along and i blogged from april 2006 and funny enough back then khalid al-bay got in touch with me he was still you know working on his cartoons and I'm like this is awesome he's like hey do you have any ideas all these editors are rejecting my cartoons i'm like why are you even freaking pitching it to editors to hell with them like just publish your own thing on your own blog and you know, the rest is history. But the, the reason I'm starting with that background is because as the years went by, I actually became dreamer. And Amir Ahmed Nasr in real life was fake. He was trying to fit in. That's he was trying so to. That's he so was, he's trying to pander. He's trying to be, you know, accepted and sacrificing his own truth. And I never understood the concept of, oh, there's actually something that's true within me. And I do have a voice that's honest and sincere and it's so deeply personal and private. And the reason it's been personal and private is because I haven't had room to express it. Give a man a mask and they will show you their true face. Right. It's yeah, it's interesting. Exactly. Exactly. So dream I thought was just a pen name and was a mask and was a persona, but actually dreamer was my true voice and the, the true me. And so when the Arab spring happened, People that I knew were on the ground and getting shot at and protesting. And I felt guilty because I was in the comfort of my room in Malaysia, sitting in my nice swivel chair with an air conditioner and being anonymous. And journalists were noticing my tweets and they're like, do you want to appear you know, in the media? Do you want to contribute an article? And I wanted to do so anonymously, but they wouldn't let me because they're like, you know, well, we need you with your real name. So I revealed my identity. But I got sucked back into Amir Ahmad Nasr. I had to shut down the blog. 
I got caught up in the euphoria of the Arab Spring. It failed. And then, to be very honest and open, I pulled myself through therapy because it just got so horrifically bad. And one of the most powerful things that my therapist shared with me, and he's an amazing world-class therapist, and I think it's really relevant, is that there's a huge difference between following your sense of purpose and following a thrill. And a lot of people get caught up in the thrill and they think that they're in a state of being passionate, but they're not actually in a state of being passionate. They got so addicted to the thrill that it actually changes the neurochemistry of the brain. And so even if the goal is achieved, the revolution succeeds. That high stops and then the neurochemistry changes and the crash is so hard that because you follow the thrill for so long, thinking that it's your purpose and it's your passion, it becomes really hard to find the way back to some sense of truth internally. One thing that I want to say was it hurts when people say that it failed, that the revolution has failed. Yeah. yeah. And because I, I think, you know, I always thought, okay, yeah, this is, you know, we're, we're part of something bigger. And it's not this, you know, and I, we always know that we're fighting a losing battle. Like we're, you know, it's, ne it's, ne it's never going to end in that way. Because, you know, whoever comes next, me as a cartoonist, I'm also going criti to critique them. That's, 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 mm. con that's continuous for me, mm. right? I, I'm not fighting for one person to get and that's going to be the solution. I know there's never going to be a solution. And I know you're always going to be critiquing, but it's tiring. For me, it was just, I'm tired. You know, I'm like, I'm, I ran out of breath and it's, it's just the feeling that you're never going to win and people around you are saying, why are you doing this? And at the same time, I, I even look at them and I'm like, why am I doing this? They're always winning and they have everything else surrounded. Like they have the, the, the propaganda, they have all the web, they own it. And it, it's, 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 it's incredible. You know? I'm reminded by uh, a quotation, uh, something that Gary Kasparov on stage said yesterday when he was actually commenting that this is 2018 is also observing the Prague Spring, which was 1958, I believe, or 1968. So he was commenting, Kasparov was commenting about how we're observing the Prague Spring in 2018 and how even though it was a failed movement, it was crushed, you know, with tanks, Soviet tanks, it is still a lot of, there's still a lot of cause to celebrate it because it inspired so many people. I mean, eventually it was Vaslav Havel who, you know, was one of those personalities, one of those people who were working for democracy and human rights around the the, 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 uh, the events of the Prague Spring, who eventually became the president of Czechoslovakia and managed to actually create this peaceful separation between, you know, Czechs and Slovaks. And you know that this kind of separation normally is a civil war. Mm -hmm. I'm also reminded by kind of the Spring of Nations in 1848, which is, again, like basically a, a bunch of revolutions that were crushed but they kind of set the stage. There, there were basically a historical junction for a lot of things that happened l later. So yes, I, I agree with you, Khaled. In the, it hurts when when people say failure, and some some of them, by the way, even here in Norway, they say it with a smile, with a smirk on their face, you know, almost taunting you. It's like you know, this is not suited for you guys. You know, you're kind of shooting above your you know above your abilities, you know. But uh, personally, I you know. It really fails if we give up. No, I, I don't mean give up in, in terms of trying, in terms of persistence. I mean exactly what Wael said. If you, if you give up on your values, mm -hmm. if you basically you, you stop being the activist and you become kind of just another bastard. 
I think even when we say failed or not failed, like we can obviously go deeper, and I think we should because this is too important. I mean, we we paid some high costs and <laughs> we went through a lot individually and collectively. But politically, in the meantime, I personally think it failed. However, I think culturally, it's been a massive success. Culturally, it has already changed the mindsets. It has already changed the attitudes. You know, when I hear my parents talking about the events in their generation, politics, and so on, there was an understanding that there was some level of oppression, some injustice, but there wasn't this acute, sharp awareness that we are oppressed. And this is an utter dictatorship, and it's horrible, and it's wrong, and we, we are being robbed of our rights. That wasn't necessarily there from the discussions that I've witnessed. And now, I think it's different now Yes, you know, the repression has gotten worse, but I think there is a real acute awareness that this is so horrible and so wrong and shouldn't be happening. I, I probably have a, uh, a bit of a different take. I, I don't see it yet as failed or succeeded. I think it was, uh, we're pretty naive quickly to quickly assume it succeeded. For example, in Egypt, mm-hmm. when we saw elections and, and people picked the, the leader that they want, but I believe that the, effects of the, the the change that we have is still it's still happening it's still, it's, it's still in it's still emerging and it will take a few years it might might end up failing but it was not a project with a with a deadline and it did change course of history it did have an impact on culture and, and and social change it's still having an impact on all the regimes even from uh from within these regimes uh and and governments Whenever I hear someone that say the Arab Spring have failed I I do actually call them on it because I don't think it, we definitely failed politically in the short term. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's very obvious. And, and unfortunately, there, there, there's a huge price that's being paid uh, right now for that failure. Yeah. But I don't think that we, we failed. I, and I, I guess like the question that we should be asking ourselves is that what should we do, be doing? Uh, rather than getting into like whether we failed or not. The future is still in front of us and we still have, uh, we still have energy. I mean, a lot of us are tired and traumatic and, you know, we're, we're trying to fix ourselves. Uh, <laughs> but as, as that is happening, there's a lot that we could do. And I'd rather focus on that. Right. Depends on how we define the Arab Spring, because if you're saying the Arab Spring failed and what you're trying to say is the 2011 movements for reform failed, then yeah, they absolutely failed. They crashed and burned and now that they've, they've been buried comprehensively. If what you mean to say is. Except Tunisia, of course. Except Tunisia. If what you mean to say is this Arab generation's struggle for dignity and liberty, that's just begun and it's going to last for a generation. And, you know, as an artist, what's really interesting is that, you know, before the Arab Spring, we didn't have street art, for example. There is no, there is no such thing as a street artist. And now you go to Egypt, you go to Tunis, you go anywhere, and, you know, even in Sudan, you'll see street artists. And that, you know, it, I think that came from that feeling that, you know, we, we feel their freedom so much that we want to write on walls, right? Because that thing didn't exist before, you know, like the, the cartoons of Gaddafi. And I still remember that, you know, it's still stuck in my head, the, the, the cartoon of Gaddafi and people throwing it with the shoes. And it's all the cartoons and everything was just, you know, it's literally like the first thing that exploded was art. Yeah. And we growing up, our generation, you know, born in the 70s and 80s, this notion of just being able to express ourselves and having a public square mm-hmm. did not exist. I mean, we actually experienced going from no public square and only expressing yourself when you were granted permission or asked to express yourself. That's the world we grew up in. Talk if you're asked to talk, 
talk if you're given permission to talk. Seeing now my younger sister, her worldview is completely different. WhatsApp, social media, Instagram, Facebook. I mean, it's just expression 24-7, unsolicited, uninvited, without permission. And that becomes the norm. And so culturally, there's no way to go back from that. And the question now becomes, well, how can we create forms of expression that are actually healthy and thoughtful and conducive? And I think we need to move from just like hyper-intellectual stuff to dealing with trauma. I think the subject of trauma, where we've barely just begun to understand it in the Arab world, and we haven't had any kind of space to have these healthy discussions. And historically, I think it's happened in the Sufi tradition, for instance, where it focuses a lot on spirituality and the importance of healing. But, you know, the structures of religion have been so decimated. Politics is just unhealthy. Like, there, there is no space to talk about healing in the Arab culture, in the Arab world, in North Africa. And even when it comes to art, it's predominantly entertainment, but not really art, again, that creates catharsis and healing for, for the human spirit. And I want to go, go back to the failure thing again, because I think the Arab world did go through failure before, and that's why our parents made us that silent, you know, because they themselves were silent, right? You know, after, after the defeats and after, you know, losing Palestine and, and Sadat and all of this, you know, they, they were silenced. They gave up. And again, you know, the, the, the word failure kept repeating itself in the media and this and that and this and that. So people just, let's move on. Let's do something else. And I think this is exactly what's happening right now. And what I, what I believe is that we should not do, you know, history repeats itself. And, you know, when we're told that we failed, we're told that we failed and we don't know what's happening and it's bigger than us and all of this. This is when we should know that this happened before and we should know how to bypass. We should just leave it because this is what our parents did. They just left. You know, you know, Khalid, I think this is too important for me not to put it here on record. You actually just triggered and sparked a really important thought. When we say we failed, who's the we? What if... It's actually not we failed, it's they failed. And I'm not saying they in a way to vilify or, you know, otherwise, but the regimes failed. The regimes failed their responsibility. The regimes failed when it comes to ethics and morals and values. They failed. I think we succeeded in many ways. So Abdurrahman Mansour just joined us. Abdurrahman, you want to introduce yourself? My name is Abdurrahman Mansour. I'm, I'm from Egypt. I used to be activist <laughs> in the era of the, Spring. The, there's no ex-activist. Once an activist, always an activist. Uh, no, not really. I think there is time between being active and not active to be like... He's a non-activist now. Non-active so, activist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, non-active activist. In, in I know activist. that, uh, Abdurrahman, you're working actually on a... Uh, you have an NGO in DC and you're working on media transparency, I believe, in Egypt. Yeah, yeah so I, I have number of organizations in, in New York, actually not, not DC, such a dream to create a democratic narrative in Egypt to counter the governmental uh, statement, to counter the counter revolution. So what I'm trying to do is to fight first to fake news because they are the main source of the counter uh, revolution narrative and also uh, trying to respond to every statement that coming from the government and the president to show that there is another alternative politics in the daily life. And I think this is the, the big point for the counter-revolution that they are trying to tell 
the narcissism that there is only one narrative in politics. Uh, so if the people were convinced that there's another opinion in everything, economic side and political and social thing, it would be, I think, a hope in the future to find uh, another door for change in Egypt. I, I'm noticing here that a lot of our work as uh, as people who, let's say, are within the activism ecosystem, a lot of our work is really focused on on media and on spreading messages. And I think that kind of reflects the fact that there is a free speech crisis in the Arab world, which makes this kind of information not only in need, but in urgent and desperate need. It seems to me that social media was the only space available to us at some point because we couldn't do anything that was considered by Western standard mainstream, such as going to traditional journalism or open an NGO like in, in Cairo instead of in D.C., there's not even academic freedom. Again, different Arab countries have different standards. But it seems that we were thrust into this online space only because other other avenues were not open. I'm reminded of when I went to Tunisia shortly after the revolution for a conference. And I was so excited when I got in the taxi and I asked the taxi driver, like, oh, you guys must be so excited. You had a revolution. Whoa, this is amazing. Like, what are your thoughts? And he had a very different opinion. He's like, well, you know, before the revolution, it was tough to make ends meet and put food on the table. Now it's even tougher because no tourists are coming. Like, but what about the constitution? You guys are now discussing the new constitution. And I, I was like, ah, constitution. Yeah, whatever. I would wipe my ass with it. Like, who cares? I, I want to put food on the table. And that was quite a revelation to me. Like, wow, I'm, I'm coming from quite a privileged perspective where I don't have to worry about putting food on the table. And so I have thought a lot about, you know, is it just social media and media and free expression and art and maybe even online education? Like, that's the main thing. Like, what about other stuff? And so I'm also excited about the prospect of, you know, solar energy being super cheap, super accessible, you know, 10, 20 years from now. I mean, imagine everyone having energy and imagine, you know, water desalination plants, for instance, on the Red Sea and ample water and ample energy like what would that do for people to their standard of living because again yeah we don't have to worry about putting food on the table you know whereas others they struggle with that day to day so why would they care about democratic principles i think something really important that amir alluded to there is that a lot of the time activists can be kind of reform nerds policy nerds you know we get excited about constitutions about systems (laughs) about long-term change and there's something that people i know in libya really hate which is when activists who work on things like democratic change and human rights tell them stuff like it took the french revolution a hundred years to produce a stable democracy (laughs) they basically flip out and say you want us to live like this for a hundred years just so you can get the kind of state that you want so we we sometimes neglect pressing everyday issues like energy like water like like the economy yeah I, i I think one of the challenges is that these issues require a certain level of expertise. And also they are, they're long-term. They're not as rewarding because I do think that uh, activists, like many other people, they're looking for rewards. Rewards here doesn't mean materialistic rewards. They, they just mean, they want to feel good about themselves. They want to see progress. So imagine yourself becoming an activist trying to advocate for a social, uh, like a policy. Uh, within the government to change energy uh, energy rules. There are people actually working on that, but those people are not getting rewarded in the same way a lot of the what we call activists are. 
And I think that poses a big question for us, which is like, what is it that we're trying to accomplish? And are we actually working on things that help us accomplish what we're trying to accomplish? Because on one hand, yeah, I agree, the whole notion of freedom of speech is important. And, and you know, a lot of people work around media, but I think working around media is much more, I mean, it's risky, but it's much more rewarding. Like speaking up uh, is much more rewarding in the short term for a lot of people than working on a, something that's very long term, mm-hmm. where they have to risk working for five years and eventually wait for a potential. And there are people who have been doing that in, in the Arab world. And I think one of the personal takeaways I, I took is that we have to appreciate those people and we have to work with them and we have to, and, and we have to give whatever voice that we have uh, into, uh, for their service. We have to give them, power them, uh, stand behind them and help them because at the end of the day, the system that's an Arab Spring lesson is not going to change in, in, in like whatever we saw. Oh my God, the, the regime collapsed in 11 days or whatever. <laughs> that's amazing. You know, here it comes, let's build the, uh, you know, our, our dream, but that's not going to work. That speaks about the fragility of the regime more than anything else. Yeah. Right? And it's, yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean you are in transition. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like we were. That's very powerful. I mean, just bringing down the regime does not mean the transition started. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It could, it could, you could bring back a worse regime. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's just, I would just love to have a, a space to talk about this. Mm-hmm. That's it. As simple as that. Like, you know, it's, yeah, solar <laughs> energy. Yes. Freedom of speech. Yes. You know, bringing down the regime. All of this. I just want to talk about this publicly without going to jail. Like, you know, like that's, that's the basic, like, I think this is a basic starting point to starting anything. Like we should be able to talk about this. You know, I really sometimes just think like, Oh my God, we really can't talk about the simplest things. It's incredible. I grew up and lived almost, almost my entire life in a country that that's the United Arab Emirates would love to have a conversation about the solar energy but not about the free speech. Mm-hmm. In fact, I mean, now they, they had a future forum, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, where they're talking about future trends. And, you know, one of their flagship projects is going to Mars. And I think that the date they set is 2040 or 2050, I can't remember. And uh, it was just like really, really poignant because it's like, we can go to Mars, but we can't have free speech. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So, so we have a comment, a rare comment from the only... <laughs> Lady in the room, Khulud, who is actually our designer at the Kawakabi Foundation. I prefer creative lead. Creative lead or creative lead. <laughs> Sorry. Designer is good too. My question is, I mean, first of all, Amir, you talked about that, you know, when you went to Tunisia, we were all excited. Um, yet the taxi driver, to, to put it politely, he, he couldn't, you know, he doesn't care as, as long as he can put food on the table. And while you mentioned that, what is the solution? How can we move forward? You know? what it is can we do to help people? And again, with Khaled as well, having a safe space, etc. Now, of course, even though I've lived abroad all my life, and therefore, I, you know, I was, I'm still indirectly effect, impacted by what has happened in the Arab Spring, specifically in my country, Libya. However, how are you going to be able to find those said solutions when those that are most impacted and affected are, you know, specifically Libya, I guess, are still lining for days just to be able to get a small amount of money so that they can feed their family. Right now, all they want is political stability and safety. They couldn't care less who will come to, to rule them. It could be another Gaddafi. I mean, actually, people right now are actually saying we want Gaddafi back. 
you know, we don't care who it is as long as, you know, they give us what we need. And that is uh, safety, healthcare, education, etc. It's like there's a disparity. Like you, Amir said that we almost feel like we are privileged. In a way we are. And in a way we are also kind of disconnected, if, if I may respectfully say so, from the people that are on the ground. That are directly impacted on a daily basis. Do you know, you know, the French Revolution took on years. Well, well, interestingly, that the same argument about how stability is the is the immediate thing that we need was actually cited by ISIS in mm. when when you know th- this was a war zone and it was like a complete mil- basically that area of Syria that was out of the control of the government. Yeah. It was always being bombed randomly, and so, uh, so many militias, etc. And one of the reasons why some communities kind of at some level and in certain way didn't mind ISIS takeover was that it provided some kind of stability. But the, the trap over here is that sometimes you, you wanted so much the stability. And when it comes, it comes with, with a face that actually makes you, makes, makes everything look much, much worse. I think when it comes to like strategy, scope, clear goals, of course, like things could have happened so much, much more differently. But I don't see that as the fundamental reason why things failed. The fundamental reason why things failed, quote unquote, is because the viciousness of the response was so horrific. How is that the fault of the activists, the reformers, the people who actually just want a better life? It's like, oh, she got beaten up by her husband and punched in the face and ended up with a bloody nose because, you know, she made a... Uh, a slight remark that that offended him. Therefore, it's her fault. It's ridiculous. A couple of thoughts. I, I think actually activists are to be blamed in 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 some countries because I also think us calling it the Arab Spring. Let's let's make the Western <laughs> make that mistake <laughs> because each of these countries have their own complete and true. You know, different. But there is a fact that we're all Arabs from different countries, and we're talking about the same phenomenon. I think that also says something. No, but every country, like I, I actually think, for example, the the Libyan example is is completely different than the Egyptian. And, and the Egyptian, yeah. the, the Egyptian, we got a chance. We actually had a window of opportunity that we've missed. And and I think part of it had to do with how I'm call just activists or activists and politicians have acted. And I think we definitely failed in that sense. I see. Yeah, but 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 I I agree. For example, like Syria, we are, and that's what I was referring yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Syria, Syria, that's the case. But in in Egypt, for example, we've had a window of opportunity. We could have actually not gone into this this notion that whatever happened in Egypt was inevitable is something I don't agree with. But I also understand if someone would say it was inevitable. Uh, the comment I I wanted to make before going uh, goes back to the question: It's like what are the what are the solutions? I think in in my view now is like if I want to help. Uh, I actually want to help in long term, uh, not in the short term, because most of the people are obsessed with short term and most of the short term is firefighting and most of the firefighting does not is not enough to stop the fires of the future. So one aspect of this is education. And I think that if you look at what's common between all of us here in the room, uh, you will find that with different means, we have been lucky or privileged or whatever it is to get exposed in different ways. And that helped us become who we are. If there are a million of us within the Arab world, uh, it's going to be different than if there are 10 millions of us. It's going to be different than if there are 50 millions of us. And I guess like the notion of like, what could we do to spread 
a better education across the region. And, and not, and I'm not talking about public education. I'm not talking about traditional education. I'm talking about what is it that we need to get a lot of people into a stage where to be like where we are, uh, which is like, Good English, have access to, uh, have access to resources, lucky to go to places or get access to people who could help mentor them, support them, uh, build projects. And I, I feel like this is something, if we really want to work out something, this is something that probably least threatening in the short term for whatever regime. And at the same time could have a very strong long term impact. Another thing within that, I started thinking that it's actually far more important to touch the lives of smaller number of people, but help them really well with the hope that they do the same with others as well, then try and go help the masses. Because unless you are a government, <laughs> you are not going to be able to impact the masses on the short term and on the long term, unless you want them to go test in the street. So part of me think that, well, we should actually get more together, attract more people around us, and we should talk more about how could we move from 1 million, 2 million, 3 million people who are activists into like 50, 60 million people uh, who believe in uh, in a future that is of, of our states that are secular, uh, uh, secular that is, that is progressive, that empowers men and women equally, all, all that stuff. And I, and I feel like we have no excuse. We are, we're here. Once we pass our trauma, and Amir is going to help us with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, once, once we pass our traumas, once we have energy, we should st- start trying to think small. W- was it you that uh, told me? Yes, yes. Yeah, so can Say you translate that? Huh? <laughs> you translate it. You go global by being local. That's, that's kind of like yeah. the essence of it. It actually started off as an expression that we used to use at an animation workshop that I used to run back in the United Arab Emirates. One thing we noticed and one thing we used to tell our students is that the more local, the more authentic you make your story. I mean, you you dig deep. I mean, talk about the very specifics of your life and your experience. It actually touches people on a universal scale more. It becomes yeah. rather than trying to make your story kind of everything to everybody. I, I like the part where you said it's actually better to affect few few lives deeply transform people like basically invest into transforming a small number of people rather than speak have shallow relationships and shallow conversations with like a million people mm-hmm. and i completely agree by the way the listeners of this pod- this podcast uh, happen to be mostly arabs who speak english mm-hmm. i mean the top 5 are cities they or? Uh, <laughs> out of four out of the top 5 cities are in the arab world and in fact, what yeah, I, don't, don't I get, mention them so that they can, I won't don't mention get blocked. <laughs> I, I get messages from people who tell me that, Yani, because we are actually considering to start an Arabic podca- podcast as well. We're just waiting for it to line up. Basically, we need more capacity for that. But people do send me and tell me that do not underestimate the, the level of political maturity that a lot of uh, Arabs have. It's just that we can't speak. It doesn't mean that we don't understand. For me, um, I basically been online for the last 10 years and now actually just, just like Wael said, I'm, I'm doing a lot of things. I'm going back to analog, really. Like I'm, I'm doing a lot of things with, with teams. I'm, I'm working with a lot of, you know, artists on the ground and activists on the ground trying to do things that affect people on the ground as well, because it's, it's great to get to masses, but it's also, it's, 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 it's really amazing to find that you touch people one-to-one and we lose that with social media really you, you really don't know who you're talking to or what's going on 
Abdul Rahman. Thank you, Iyad. I think we are in journey, and uh, as we need to to work very hard to achieve our our goals, we need also to enjoy our very long march to uh, what we Absolutely. Want to I think there is one theme that we talked a lot about, but we did not cover it enough, I guess, in this podcast. But probably it is worth another episode, which is self care. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Amir? On that note, my closing remarks basically have to do with my transition from survivor's guilt to finding my own sense of self again, because one thing that I've never talked about or really tapped fully into is that when I was based in Malaysia, I was part of an amazing e-commerce company as a senior partner, and I've developed a lot of business skills. But you know, I had this other existence as an activist, and both were always in conflict. And then after arriving in Canada and finding healing and reconciliation, for me, the path forward, and it sounds strange to say for a former activist or an activist who's not really super activist, my number one goal is to get rich, building an amazing business that can actually serve people, and then using that financial wealth to invest into nonprofits, philanthropic endeavors. And, and I think that's something really important that activists need to consider because the skills that we develop through activism, strategy, networking, advocacy, marketing, branding, those are all amazing skills for these, business. These, these are all the best qualities of a, of a of an entrepreneur. entrepreneur it's, it's, really. I mean, but you know, the, the line about, you know, to, to get rich actually reminds me of, of my, uh, my literary agent, Toby, Toby Mundy, shout out to him. Because one of the first things he told me is that my job is to make you rich. Right. right. And, and, and I think we have a, a discomfort talking about money and talking about let's get rich because somehow, oh, like that's terrible. You should be this like noble humanitarian. And I, I think the two don't have to be in conflict. And that's what I learned. And so people like Richard Branson, he started as an activist and then moved on to other things. And, you know, I, I think it's important that we consider those avenues as well because the skills are very applicable in business. So that's everything from Seven Arabs in a Room. We'll be back with the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast next time. Thanks for listening. It was fascinating to hear multiple takes on whether the Arab Spring failed among Arab activists. The discussion was nuanced and surprisingly self-critical, but there was no cynicism or defeatism, just the maturity of taking the long-term view as we recalibrate for the future. It's interesting to think about which things have changed and which have stayed the same. This discussion was recorded 12 months ago, but has aged surprisingly well. We're here at the Oslo Freedom Forum 2019 as we publish this. You can read Ahmed's blog, a link is in the description. We hope to have more great interviews and discussions for you soon. And of course, it's all made possible by our supporters on Patreon. You can make your pledge today knowing that listener support means far more to us than any institutional grant and enables us to stay independent as activists and unbeholden to anything but our principles and the change we want to create in the world. If you can please visit patreon.com forward slash kawakibi. The link is in the description below. The Arab Tyrant Manual podcast is a project of the Kawakibi Foundation. قلب تألم ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو زمان المزيف يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألم ويا زمانا 
سيأتي يمحو الزمان المزين